We're in our seventh, well, we're only, we've only did six of the penitential psalms, but our last, Psalm 143, is the text we'll do today, and I'm trying, we do this from time to time, to recite these to let you know that it can be done, that you can memorize these things. It is not my intention for you to think, wow, he can memorize a whole chapter of the Bible every week. I can't do that, so I won't try anything. That would be the wrong conclusion to jump to. A gross misinterpretation. I'm just wanting you to think about getting the words of God in small chunks that you can manage. Maybe it's a sentence. Maybe it's a verse or two. Maybe for some of you it would be a chapter. To start working on it, to have something like a lozenge to dissolve in your mouth, to implant in your soul, to change the way you think about things, to change the mental furniture that you've got when you're walking around in the world so that you're not victimized by yourself all the time. So, try to memorize the Bible. Now, this week, I was practicing in the car on the way to baseball practice yesterday with the boys. Sometimes in the car, we read a passage of scripture and pray when we get in the car. And I was having them check me as I was reciting these. And Anders said this to me, when do you have to do this again? And I said, it was something like this. And I said, tomorrow. And he was like, oh, no. <laughs> I, think it, <laughs> I think my legal advice has been not to try this today. But I, I learned it better as the day went on. His assessment was good. He was just concerned for me and didn't want his father to embarrass his family. But here we go, Psalm 143. We'll see. I, I got a later start than usual in learning this stuff, trying to. The Psalm of David, O Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy. In your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief. Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you. The enemy pursues me. He chases me, crushes me to the ground. He makes me dwell in darkness like those long dead, so that my spirit grows faint within me. And my heart within me is dismayed. I remember the days of long ago. I meditate on all your works. I consider what your hands have done. I spread out my hands before you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O God. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, or I will be like those who have gone down to the pit. Let the morning bring word of your unfailing love for I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go. For to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Rescue me from my enemies. For you are my God. Uh Teach me to do your... uh, Rescue me from my enemies, for I hide myself in you. Teach me your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on a level path. For your namesake, O Lord, preserve my life, and in your righteousness, lead me out of trouble. In your unfailing love, silence my enemies, destroy all my foes, for I am your servant. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. How great it would be to have this kind of zealous expectation 
that depends very little on us and so much on your fidelity toward us, on the preservation of your own character, of the intimate knowledge that you're such a God that you can't resist answering prayers like these. We need you to buoy our confidence today because it flags, it sinks. It's hard for us to keep on believing. There's a lot about our lives that makes it seem like you're not listening. Would you, though, come here? Don't let us have a famine of your word in this place. But instead, let us, as your weary inheritance, be refreshed this morning that we might produce good fruit as we go out into the world, that we might be walking advertisements for an enchanted world where God really is. Come live in us. Come alter us. Come rescue us and grant us relief. We invite you, Holy Spirit. Come now, Lord Jesus. Amen. There is a movie called The Island that some of you may have seen. And in it, Ewan McGregor's character, Lincoln Echo 6, for you nerds, movie nerds, says to Steve Buscemi's character, God? What is God? And wizened, cynical Buscemi says this, you know, God, he's the one that when you want something really badly and you close your eyes and you wish for it, he's the one who ignores you. You know, God, he's the one when you wish for something really badly, you want it really badly and you close your eyes and you wish for it, God's the one who ignores you. And I think that's a fairly fitting description of how it feels sometimes and part of what the psalmist would counter today in asking us, what is it that you imagine God to be like? Is he someone who, when you close your eyes and you wish really hard to him, is the one who's merely going to ignore you? Or is he the one that you can say, hear my prayer, listen to my cry for mercy, in your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief? The pattern and the fullness of your life will depend a lot on which you think is the case. And the hardest thing about it is that Bushimi's description is what fits our experience so much, which is part of what I think is so wonderful about the Bible, that it doesn't really sugarcoat this. It tells us, it gives us people at prayer, like here, King David. We don't know for sure the situation. It might be after his son Absalom, who's following in his path, who's coming against him. It might be that. He's clearly in some kind of distress He's about to die. The light's going from his eyes. His spirit faints. His enemies are against him. He's in the kind of situation that no one wants to be in, which is the kind of situations you often find yourself in. And it doesn't sugarcoat the idea that I am in this awful place and I need God to show up in it. And if he doesn't, it's going to be a blight against his character. It's going to be proof. It's going to be a blotch against his pristine name. And so I'm going to wrestle with him. I like it that the Bible gives us this kind of existential funkiness 
this kind of personality wonkiness, this kind of suffering that says, I'm going to wrestle with the only one who can do something about this, who seems so awfully absent, and I'm going to wrestle with him until he becomes present. Today, as we look at this, I want you to think first of this. You've got to start to see your need for relief as an invitation from God. You've got to start to see your need for relief as an invitation from God. One thing is very clear as you look through this psalm, as you listen to the parts of it. It starts out, give me relief. Give me relief. Come to my relief. It ends with, lead me out of trouble. It talks about my spirit being faint and failing. My heart being dismayed within me. It talks about sinking, being a cut flower, wilting, being defenseless. There's nobody in here who's hoping that that will be their lot this week, I'm assuming. But this shows us this man after God's own heart, this king of Israel who is praying, and Jesus could have mouthed all these prayers himself, is showing us that we must learn to see our need for relief as an invitation from God, that some of your best encounters with God, some of the invitations and opportunities that are going to present themselves for you to have some kind of rich and robust connection to God are not going to happen on the sunniest days. It's not likely or as likely when you look at the Psalms to think that you're going to encounter God most fully when you're on a beach frolicking in Destin and the, and the blue-green ocean water is glimmering and the, the sun is kissing it ever so gently and magnetically. And you just are overcome with the wonder of it all and you say, Lord, I give myself undividedly and full-heartedly to you. Use me as you will. You won't do it, I promise. You might say, this is cool, thanks God. Oh. But it won't. That's not going to be the times. Those aren't going to be the times. I hope that any time you find joy, that you turn all your pleasures into channels of adoration, as C.S. Lewis said. But one of the things you learn in these penitential, penitential psalms that we've been looking for through in these 40 days of Lent, mimicking the 40 days of Jesus in the desert, desert times are times when you get weaned off yourself. When you find out, are there resources when there don't appear to be any resources? Is there food in a place where food doesn't grow? Is there strength in a place where I'm assaulted with weakness? Is there any refreshment in a place that's arid and dry and baking hot like Orlando? Is there any help that can come from outside to me? You find that out in the desert. Most of us, when we get to these kinds of points like the psalmist is here, our first thought is going to be, I need to make a change. I need to get somewhere else. I need to, in the most extreme examples, I need a new spouse. I've got a need for relief. Something's not right. I am fainting in spirit. My heart is dismayed within me. I need another man or a woman. 
I need a different house. We need a new kitchen. If not, at least a lovely new pair of shoes or a nice handbag or a new gun. Equal opportunity. Or truck. I don't know. There are all kinds of ways in your life when this need for something. And you're going to start looking out. You're going to start blaming people for how they've not come through. You're going to start thinking there's got to be some way for me to do something about this quickly. But God would say, see your need for relief as an invitation to come to me as David does here. Because David recognizes this. If you hide your face from me, I will be like those who go down to the pit. In other words, like the other Psalms say, when you open up your hand, you satisfy the desires of every living thing. And when you hide your face, they're terrified and they die. If we don't have the face of God on us, if we don't have the sense that he's watching, that we're in his presence, there is no life. No matter what else you've got or who you've got, you've still stuck with you in a godless existence. And so think of every moment that you need relief, even though you don't want it. I know you don't want it. I don't want it either. As, as an invitation to the God who can do something about it. So when you find in your life, like Allison in the second coming, who said things had not gone well for her, all A's in school, but flunked ordinary living. When you flunked ordinary living, you've done what you shouldn't have done. You have experienced or gotten a diagnosis that you thought only other people got. Something happened to your family that is supposed to only happen to other families. These are the invitations. Will God come to my relief? Will God lead me out of trouble? Can God do something about it? Will I run away right now and take relief into my own hands, or will I seek it from him? Louis C.K., you know this cat? He says funny things from time to time, and he's awfully foul. But he was on, you know, the Conan, the O'Brien... Conan O'Brien show or something. You've probably seen this clip when he's talking about smartphones and his children and how he didn't want them to have them. And he describes this scenario where he's in his car one day. And it's a perfect example of someone in need of relief. I think it's an apt description of the kinds of ways that all of you feel when the house gets quiet or you find yourself alone. Or nowadays, you're probably so unaccustomed to being quiet even for a second you're just standing in the grocery store line or something. He said, I was sitting in my car and I was driving. And all of a sudden, this wave of sadness started to come over me. There was a Bruce Springsteen song on the radio filled with, you know, guttural groans and such. And so it just sort of got me in touch with my, this, this deep sadness. And I felt it coming on. And everybody around me was texting on the way to vehicular homicide. And I thought, my first thought as this sadness was coming on me is, I need to text like 50 people and say hi, so somebody will write back to me and verify my existence and validate it. Hey, man, how you doing? So somebody cool could write me back and say, you matter. They said, you know what I did? I decided to resist that urge. 
And I pulled over and I put my phone down and I just let the sadness come. I just let it hit me. These are my words, not his. Like a, you know, like a kid at the beach, you just stand up to the wave and you just let it knock you back. I just let the sadness come. I just stood up straight and took it. And he said, and I just wept. And it was a beautiful, poetic moment, he said. But then he said this powerful thing. He says, most of us never get too happy or too sad. We're just sort of vaguely satisfied with our products. And I think one of the great tricks of our enemy, of our souls, is that you would never come in contact with the full need for relief because you'd be constantly occupied in mind with a device or a gadget or shopping or working or playing a sport and you never get to get in touch with the relief which is your invitation, which is your access to a kind of visitation from God that you need. But you won't get if you're constantly viewing the need for relief as some invitation to go somewhere else. You need to see your need for relief, the visitation of trouble, as an invitation from God. And when you come to him, number two, you've got to consider him and not your own qualifications. That's another heartening thing, I think, when you know yourself. Is that when the psalmist comes here to God, he doesn't say, look here. Like he's in a job interview. Look here, God. Here's why you should help me. Did you see what I did for my kids last week? Do you notice, did you notice in that meeting when someone took credit for something I did? I didn't even say anything. Did you, what? how humble was that? Did you notice that I made a gift in the offering plate this week? Did you notice that I did the dishes without anybody even asking me to once in my whole life? Did you notice this, God? I gave a man on the street, I gave him some money when he was asking for some food. And I almost looked him in the eye like he was a person. Not really, but I almost did. Come on, God, look at that. He doesn't do any of that. When he comes to God, he, all really he brings is, dude, I got nothing. Here's what I got. Dismay, fainting spirit, been ground down by the wheels of living. I'm a vacuous person. Hope's been scraped out of me. I'm nothing left. I just have trouble. I'm just a diseased leper of a person in my existence. And all I've got is to say, will you do something because you're the kind of God who helps the people who are like me? That's all he has to say. He doesn't try to sort out why God should help him based on his own qualifications, why he's good enough or why he's, he's repented enough or he's offered up his sins enough. You know, in some kinds of job interviews, you know, they train you. I don't know what people do anymore. Turn your strengths and your weaknesses into strengths. You know, like, what's your, what's your biggest weakness? My biggest weakness is I care too much and I work too hard. It's a Michael Scott kind of answer. I care too much and I work too hard, but you, you drop all that pretense when you've been given a kind of clemency. When you realize, you know what? Don't bring your servant into judgment for no one living is righteous before you. You can drop the act. 
And it's very important, in fact, to do that. To say, I don't really have a claim here. I can't say, I'm better than Billy, I'm better than Joey, I'm better than Steve, whoever those people are. So please hear my prayer. You can just say, God, we're all so awful. I hope you're the kind who shows mercy and doesn't bring us into judgment. You can understand if you're thinking like that, one problem is this. An Orthodox priest named uh, Andrew Shmemememem, I think that's his name. He's not a cartoon character. Shmemem. I don't know how you say his name. He talked about, this is like 40 years ago, he talked about taking confession in a town in Pennsylvania. And he said, I took confession with probably 50 parishioners and not a one of them could name a sin that they'd committed. Well, this is a problem, you see. If we're people who are dealing with a God that we want to say, do not bring us into judgment. See, the Bible's always worried about God judging things. Jesus is weeping over the city because judgment's going to fall on people because they have extended the middle finger to God. And so judgment's coming to them. It's a big deal whether you respond to God or whether you turn away from God. And judgment's what it feels like when you turn your back on the love of God. That's what it feels like. Just like his love is what it feels like when you turn toward it. It feels warm. It feels awful when you turn away from it. And if you don't know yourself to be someone who has done and does awful things if you can't mouth them if you have to say no 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 this way i'm being this is this is not sin then you're cutting yourself off from one of the best resources that jesus offers namely forgiveness mercy he doesn't give you what you deserve but if all your sins can be justified if you can't help it because of your heredity if you can't help it because it's just a It's a psychological malady. If everything can be explained in a therapeutic way and you have no say in it, then you're cut off from a mercy that's meant to be the oxygen that you breathe. You don't think of yourself. You think of his qualifications. The only thing you have to offer is your emptiness and your sin to him, your rebellions, the things that are impolite to say out loud. And when you say them, You have this kind of audacity that you're enjoined upon to believe. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love. Show me the way to go. Teach me what I'm supposed to do. Rescue me from my trouble. Don't bring me into judgment. Do you hear this? He's just telling God left and right all kinds of audacious requests. Kill my enemies, punch them in the mouth. Kick them in the midsection. Make them cry and make me vindicated. I was at a prayer meeting the other day. We got this new charismatic prayer meeting going on Thursday mornings at 10. Anybody's welcome at Ann Stewart's house. We're praying Rock Creek folk and the folks from Cross Connection. It's an awesome prayer experience. And this one lady said, she told about a time she said, Now, guys, when I was 20, I was married to this man. Oh, no, sorry. I was engaged to this man who wanted to be a pastor. And I just knew I did not want to be a pastor's wife. Sound familiar, anyone? And they, this is a story that goes around a lot of times. People are scared to be pastor's wives because pastors are weird. And so he wanted to be a pastor. 
She did not. She said, I was praying. And she said, now listen. This is, this was a stupid request, but I was 20. You've got to understand. And I thought, what a great thing for her to say. This is a stupid request, but I was 20. You've got to understand. I think she was basically praying, God, get me out of this. And she met some dude while she was engaged. And didn't marry that dude. And she married this guy. She's been married 50 years or something. But I loved it that she said, this is stupid, but I was 20. You've got to understand. She didn't filter her prayer. She just said the stupid request, the audacious request to God because she knew he's the kind of God who looks after children and fools. The one who answers requests that might be stupid because we don't know any better. We're the kind of people that say, you know what? I don't know any better. I don't know how to handle my marriage. I don't know how to handle myself. I don't know how to handle my habits. I don't know how to handle my mental health. I don't know how to handle my relationships at work. I don't know how to do this. I don't know very much. And so I'm saying, here, do something with me. You make audacious requests. Flannery O'Connor did a similar thing in her prayer journal. She was age 20 herself or 21. She said, God, I'm struck with the ridiculousness of this request, but as it is right now, I am cheese. And I want you to make me into a mystic immediately. Now, it's a weird thing to say you are cheese, and I wonder, what does this metaphor mean? That she's cheese, that she's a piece of some dairy product that you put on a sandwich. And she's saying, make me someone who's so alive and connected to God that I'm just beaming his sunlight out of me, that I have this sort of experiential knowledge of God that's so satisfying and refreshing. I think at least cheese to mystic is about as far apart as you can get. And she says, I'm struck with the ridiculousness of the request because I'm asking you to make me this way immediately. But when you have a lot of confidence in God to do things, you'll make a lot of ridiculous requests. And they won't be based on whether you think you're worth it or not. They'll just be based on whether you think that he's a God who's very compassionately inclined towards you. Uh Uh-oh. The situation. You don't look at your qualifications. You consider him and his. And so the psalmist is always putting him on the hook. You know your reputation is at stake here. For the sake of your name. For the sake of your name. Because of your righteousness, because of your faithfulness, because you're the one who honors your promises. Let the morning be a time when I rush out and find your covenant fidelity, your help to the helpless. That's what Hesed is, your unfailing kindness. Let me find that. It's not based on me. It's based on you. I know this is stupid, but I'm 20. You've got to understand. You can make requests like this. You need to see that your need for relief is an invitation. You need to consider not yourself and your qualifications, but you need to consider God's when you come. And you don't have to overly examine yourself. You need to be able to acknowledge that you've got sin, but that He's the God who will do something about that even then. And then the last part has something to do with your own connection to this matter. Because if you really believe that God's interested in your relief... And showing you how to get it by coming to him. You have to ask this. Am I willing to receive it from him? Or do I have my fingers crossed behind my back? That's a harder question. Am I willing to receive this from God? Or do I have my fingers crossed from behind 
my back. You'll notice as David makes these prayers, there's this flipped coin kind of thing going on. When he says, answer me quickly, Lord. Let the morning bring word of your unfailing love, for I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Rescue me from my enemies, for I hide myself in you. He is making declarations here. He's saying, you are my sovereign king and I belong to you. The main thing about me is I'm your possession. So you've got to protect me. Teach me the way I should go. I'm the king of Israel here. Teach me how I'm supposed to be faithful. Because I don't know. Now, one of the things that's going to happen to you, and I imagine for lots of you it has happened, it does happen. This strange things happen when the spirit of the living Christ comes into you. You actually find yourself wanting to pray things like this. You actually realize, you know what? I don't want to be led along by my own nose. I want you to show me the way I should go. I want you to teach me to do your will. But if you don't do it, there's no chance I'm going to be able to do it. Give me an undivided heart so that I may fear your name. Or as Augustine would say, command what you will, but grant what you command. Command me to do anything and everything, but heavens to Betsy, Lord, you're going to have to empower me to do it. You're going to have to show up and show off your ability to reconfigure me, to empower me, to ennoble me to be able to do these things. Are you willing to offer yourself up to him? You know, Jesus once asked a man who was about to be sick, do you want, what do you want me to do for you? A man who'd been sick his whole life, crippled his whole life. What do you want me to do for you? Is that a cruel request or is it a request to someone that says, look, sickness can become an identity. Your maladies can become an identity. Even being a sinner can become an identity. Oh, just a big old fat sinner. Oh, And it becomes a way of distancing yourself from those very sins that you seem to be claiming. But what you're doing when you're coming to God is you're saying, look, and it should be a little scary sometimes, and it should be a little awfully good sometimes too. Lord, this scares me to death, but I know I can't do a thing with myself. You're going to have to do something with me. Burn away my dross. Change the pollution in me. Reconfigure my brain. Rewire my heart. For the sake of your name. Defile my enemies. Kick them away so that I can be someone who follows you. Are you willing or do you have your fingers crossed behind your back? The interesting thing is even if you can own up to the fact that your fingers are crossed. God, I want to follow you, but only kind of maybe so long as it doesn't cost much. You can at least own that. Uncross my fingers, Lord. It's a sign of him hooking you. That you can acknowledge there are parts of me I'm holding back. It's what makes me not want to come to you. It's what makes me want to stay away from you. It's what makes me want to talk about you but not talk to you. But see, if you start to realize you need relief, which is an invitation to God. An invitation not to talk about God but to talk to God. And you think not about your own qualifications for being there 
but about his kind of being as a God who's predisposed to listen to you. And you ask yourself if you're willing, and then you ask him to make you willing as you offer yourself to him. What do you imagine God doing? Is he the one when you close your eyes and you wish really hard that ignores you? Or is he the one that is inviting you? I heard a podcast this week by a Marine named Eric Greetens, who was a Navy SEAL, actually, and a Rhodes Scholar who had been a humanitarian and been on many humanitarian missions, and then he became a Navy SEAL. And he wrote this great title of a book that I wish I had come up with called The Heart and the Fist. Like, dang, The Heart and the Fist. And he speaks about being age 20 and being in the kinds of humanitarian works that he had been in in a number of places. He had been in Cambodia where there were children who were polio survivors and landmine survivors who had lost limbs. He had been in Rwanda around orphan children who were part of the genocide there. He had been in Bosnia where there had been this terrible ethnic cleansing in the 90s. And he was there in Bosnia with a father in a house, and the man was saying to him, I'm so appreciative that you're here. I'm so thankful that the international community has done so much to make sure that my children have a kindergarten to go to and that we have food during this awful time. But if the world really loved us, it would fight to protect us. That's what this man said. And this This young boy said, that was the first thought I had to say that my compassion has to be wed to my courage. My heart has to have with it a fist. In a violent world, sometimes there has to be violent protection. So he became a seal. Whatever you think about that, think about this heart and fist. Because what's amazing about it is we think about Jesus. You think about the image of Steve Buscemi saying, when I pray, God is the one who ignores me. And here's what the gospels say. You want to see what a picture of God's like? Picture him on the last week of his earthly life. This is being reported. We don't think this is fiction. He's standing over the city of Jerusalem. The exact representation of God's being the one who makes God known. And he looks out over a city of people who have extended the middle finger to him. People, he's knocked on the door. God's knocked on their door and they've looked in the people and they said, I don't recognize God. And they call the police on him. And these people are about to be judged. They're about to be destroyed by their enemies. And here's what God's doing. He's crying. His guts are shaking. He's weeping because he held out an invitation. I want to give you relief. I want to give you the visitation of God. I want to make you what you were for. And you refused it. And therefore welcomed your own demise. And he couldn't smile and he couldn't laugh. His guts shook. And it came out through his eyes in tears. The heart of God. But we're also told that he came, the reason the Son of God came was that he might destroy the works of the devil. That this heart of God at the very same time in Mark's gospel, in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus comes into the city, 
in his last week for self-donation, he comes into the temple and he clears it out with zeal. And he says, this is supposed to be a place of prayer for all the nations, my father's house. Zeal for your house has consumed me. See, Jesus has got a heart and he's got a fist. A fist to destroy your enemies. A fist to destroy everything that's against you. But a heart that makes him move towards you in care. And that's why he wants you to move toward him when you need relief, when you are in trouble. It matters so very much what you imagine about him. Can you see him there weeping over people who refuse his invitation? What does that mean? It means go to him. Accept the invitation. Leanne Payne says this. She said to a woman who was hurting so deeply and desperately. And every time she started to hurt, she started inflicting her wounds on everyone else outside of her. She would get in touch with her inner child, her inner despair. And she would lash out at other people and she would fold into depression. She would constantly practice her sorrows. And she said, you know what you do when you hurt? You do something that never would occur to me to do when I hurt. When I hurt, I stand up straight and hurt. And I look to God to give me help until he does. And it may take a while, but he always does. And I see him on the cross. And I watch my sorrows. And I imagine my sorrows flowing from me into him. My sins flowing from me into him. So that he might heal me. Just as I saw my mother doing when I was growing up. It would never occur to me to lash out in my pain at someone else. As if it's the church's fault. As if it's God's fault. As if it's your fault. I have to offer it to the one who said he was going to take the fist of God. In judgment. And bear my sorrows and my pains. Because of the very heart of God. Julia Slagle, last thing, said this this week. She told me I could tell this story. To show your imagination matters so much. When she was a little kid, kids, you may feel this way sometimes. I felt this way. When she was a little kid, she would be afraid of the dark. She would be afraid when she'd go to bed at night sometimes. She would be afraid if images would be in her head, things she didn't want to think about were there. And her mother told her to imagine that Jesus was there in the room with her. She said, I thought about this idea in Genesis where it said the, the son of Eve would crush the head of Satan. And she said, and I would imagine this like cartoon character of Jesus in my room. And any kind of monster, any kind of scary thing in my room would come out. I would imagine Jesus coming and squashing him on the head. and Destroying him that he would fight for me. I thought, that's a pretty good depiction of what faith should do. You're actively engaging with the reality that you can't see that says, this God will act. He will let me stand up straight and hurt, and he'll take my hurts. I can expect him to do this, but I must go to him. Because he's got a heart, but he's also got a fist. And the enemies that will seek to separate me from others and separate me from myself and separate me from my God. He'll knock on the nose. He'll fight for us because he's a God of the heart and a God of the fist. A divine warrior 
who weeps and who takes the punishment of God for us? Will you accept your need for relief as an invitation? Will you consider God as the one who has a reputation to uphold, though you have no reputation? Will you offer yourself willingly to him and uncross your fingers behind your back? Imagining he's not the one who closes his eyes and says, I just think I'll ignore him. He's the God that comes to your relief, who fight for you, and who will renew you. Amen.